says that it's gospel-centered, and that's what we have here at Christ Fellowship. But one of the marks of a, a healthy youth ministry is that good friendships are developed in youth ministry. And about five years ago, a friendship started to brew between a, a I think I can say this and not get in trouble, between a boy and a girl, right? And uh, you know how it is. I learned this, I think, in, in college. You got, you got your friendship, then you got your relationship, right? There's a difference. So the friendship between this boy and this girl slowly blossomed into a relationship. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay, don't have to preach a sermon on that one, right? Well, that was about four years ago that the relationship started. And last night at the youth center, where the friendship first was initiated, where the friendship blossomed into a relationship, Last night it was taken to a whole new level, and so it is uh, my pleasure to tell you that my good friend, Kyle Veldman, got down on one knee and asked for Kylie Myers' hand in marriage. And that's not the best part of the news. The best part of the news, and if you guys would stand, I'm just going to kind of break the ice. Kylie said yes! So would you welcome me in congratulating our friends? Those are the announcements I like to make. That's exciting. Well, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. It was July the 3rd, 1775, and George Washington has been installed as the Continental Commander-in-Chief. He and his generals... They ride to the encampments where the sound of fifes and drums meet them. You know what I'm talking about? Do, 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 right? It's time to meet the troops. And nothing in Washington's experience as an officer for both the British and the French during and the Indian War as the leader of the Virginia militia could have prepared him for what he was about to see with his own very eyes. The troops are, as one observer said, quote, the most wretchedly clothed and as a dirty of a set of mortals as ever disgraced the name of a soldier, end quote. In fact, many of them, they're not soldiers at all. They are farmers. They are common laborers. They are ex-criminals, and these soldiers are beggars. Some are suspiciously old, and some are suspiciously young. Many wield pitchforks and shovels as weapons, while others carry no weapon at all. The men had arrived and are still arriving from all directions from different colonies with no system in place to organize them or feed them. They're spread out in disorganized encampments over a stretch of several miles with no running water or sanitation system. The stench of brimming open latrines is overwhelming. And as one orderly describes it, when the latrines are full, sorry, the men spread excrement about the fields perniciously. Close quote. This is the army 
these are the men with whom George Washington is supposed to fight the biggest, the most powerful, the most feared military machine in all the world in the 18th century. I ask you today, can you relate to such a story? Have you ever been in a situation where the odds were totally stacked against you? Have you ever faced a a season in your life where you felt like you were doomed? When George Washington saw that group of ragtag soldiers, he must have felt a certain amount of dread and even depression. This morning, I want to have you etch that image of those soldiers in your mind. For they faced a foe that by conventional standards was simply unbeatable. The British military, as I've already said, was the most powerful, aggressive fighting machine on the planet. And so the odds were, of course, heavily in favor of the British. I believe that every person on the planet right now can relate to this image. That is to say, I believe that every person understands what it's like to to face odds that are completely against them. And here's the reason I believe that. The reason is that we are born, as we have labored to, to discover in recent weeks, we are born into a state of, of total depravity. We are born into a state of radical depravity. We are born into a state of radical corruption. I can't tell you how many people have said to me face to face, Pastor, I've never heard that phrase, total inability. I've heard of total depravity. I've heard heard that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but this idea of total inability, that's one that is new to me. And if it's new to you this morning, you need to understand that when the Bible says that you are sinful, yes, it is true, you have sinned, you have fallen short of the glory of God, but built into that that sinful condition is the biblical notion that you are totally unable, you are totally incapable. Let me put it this way to make it as clear as I possibly can. As a sinner... Apart from the grace of God, you can never lift a finger in God's direction. You don't have the ability, you don't have the inclination, you don't have the desire, you will never again utter the phrase, what about free will, because you know now that you are totally incapacitated apart from God's amazing grace. Moreover, we have learned that the penalty of sin is judgment and condemnation. We have learned that that death reigned through our father, through our father Adam. And so we face the reality of our our sin and the consequences of our sin. And as a result, we can relate to those citizen soldiers on that day in 1775 as they trembled at the prospect of doing battle, of going to war with the British fighting 
machine. Now, it is no secret how that battle ended. We all know how that battle ended. That group of tattered, inexperienced, uneducated men were triumphant over their enemy. They won the Revolutionary War, and what did they do? They changed the course of human history. Amen? The passage before us helps us to understand how totally depraved, how radically corrupt, how totally incapable people can stand triumphant over their enemy, the enemy of sin and death. The title of the message this morning is Revolutionary Grace, and it will take nothing less, as you will see rather quickly, than revolutionary grace for sinners like you and I to stand victorious. Let's stand together as we read this passage. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. This is God's authoritative word. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, my simple prayer this morning is that revolutionary grace would awaken someone today. My prayer is that revolutionary grace would raise someone from the grave today. God, my prayer is that revolutionary grace would encourage, would embolden, would equip, would help someone in their time of need. We all come with a, a, a certain amount of baggage, Lord. Some bring more than others, but we all confess, no matter where we stand before you, that we need revolutionary grace right now. May you help us and enable us as we study this passage together that your people would be filled with a sense of joy that your people would be filled with a sense of awe in who you are and what you have accomplished through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning I want you to look with me at two major headings. I want to give those headings in advance to you. If you're taking notes, you can uh, jump to Roman numeral number one and Roman numeral number, number two. Number one, I want you to see a radical, a radical comparison. A radical comparison. And secondly, I want you to see this idea of revolutionary grace. Begin with me with radical comparison. It begins in verse 18. Once again, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, for, for whom? For some men? For, for all men. This is comprehensive. Comprehensive. 
con- th- this trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul begins this, this final unit of thought, and Lord willing, we will finish our exposition of Romans chapter 5 this morning, but he begins this final unit of thought with that very important word, therefore. And on the basis of all that we have seen thus far, he wants to, to anchor in our hearts and in our minds a radical comparison to his readers. That's you and I and the readers in the first century. And that radical comparison is between Adam and Christ. The comparison is between two people, Adam and Christ, and what Paul sets forth is what we will soon see is really a review of what we discovered last week in verses 15, 16, and 17. And so it is important that we understand the flow of Paul's argument as he re-emphasizes these great realities. And so notice with me the radical comparison between Adam and Christ, and we will begin with Adam. We'll begin with Adam by noting in verse 18 that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Again, this is comprehensive. No one is excluded. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. The word trespass comes from the Greek term that means the action of going beyond or overstepping some moral boundary or limit. And of course, we all are are tuned into the idea that it it is God's boundary line that we have transgressed. The action of going beyond or overstepping God's moral boundary or limit. Go back with me for a moment to verse 12, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, namely Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we, we rightly identified that the trespass or the sin came into the world through this one man. It came through Adam. And may I remind you that the, the idea of my trespasses, the idea of your trespasses, it, it, it is no trivial matter. This is a, a serious, serious subject. Got to thinking this morning, if I were ever stranded on a desert island and I could take my Bible with me and a handful of books, If I had a handful of books beyond my Bible, I would definitely take one of my editions of the works of Jonathan Edwards. This this has been my constant companion for over 25 years. I read and reread and study and ponder and meditate. Jonathan Edwards may be the most influential dead man in my life. Born in 1703, died in 1758, he wrote a treatise entitled, Men Naturally God's Enemies. I want to share a few thoughts from that treatise. Edward says this, 
the natural tendency of the heart of people is to fly from God and keep at a distance from Him as far off as possible. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and you could just tell they wanted out of there? They wanted nothing to do with you. They wanted nothing to do with the Bible. But most important, they wanted nothing to do with God. The conversation couldn't be over quicker. The reason for that, Edwards explores. That the natural tendency of the heart of man is to fly from God and keep a distance from Him as far off as possible. A natural man, Edwards says, is averse to communion with God and is naturally disinclined to those exercises of religion wherein he has immediately to do with him. More simply, Edward says, that their wills are contrary to his will. That is, every person who is in Adam, that is, every person who is not yet a follower of Jesus, their wills are contrary to his will. They are the very opposite, Edward says, to the commands of God. Mark in your mind all the violence that you've seen over the last several months. It's exactly what Edwards has taught us all along. They are very opposite to the commands of God. They are, Edwards says, enemies to God in their affections. That is, what they love is anything and everything except God in his word. Now this next quote you have heard me utter probably numerous times and it is the quote that has probably gotten me in more hot water over the years than any other quote I've ever uttered. But if it's true, what shall I do? I'm going to read it. I'm going to say it and we're going to believe it together. Edward says this, the heart, and he's referring to the unconverted heart. The heart is like a viper, a poisonous snake hissing and spitting poison at God. You see why that's unpopular. But we need to remember when we share the gospel with our friends whom we love, that deep down in their heart of hearts, their disposition, their inclination, their attitude toward God is that hissing, poisonous snake. Hissing, spitting poison at a holy God. Edward says they are enemies in their practice. They walk contrary to God. They are engaged in war against God. Now Paul says in verse 18 that the trespass leads to condemnation. You see it there. The trespass leads to condemnation, which is defined as a legal decision of the guilty in a criminal case. We saw this last week in Romans 5.16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. May I remind you that this is a just condemnation. Have you ever heard the line, why would a good God send good people to hell? Did you know, I'm going to say something that might sound strange when you first hear it, that God will never send a good person to hell. He will never send a good person to hell. He never has sent a good person to hell. 
And the reason I can say that with 100% degree certainty is no one is good. No, not one. This is a just condemnation. This is a deserved condemnation. There will never be a sinner in hell who says, God, you should have given me another chance. There will never be a sinner in hell who says, this is unjust. Every sinner in hell knows that he or she deserves to be there. This is a condemnation that involves the wrath of God. This is eternal condemnation. Number two, by the one man's disobedience, verse 19, disobedience, by the one man's disobedience rather, the many were made sinners. We also saw that last week. So in verse 19, Paul draws our attention back to Adam and he reminds us that that you and I were made sinners through Adam's disobedience. Disobedience is defined as transgression or the failure to submit to a law. When Adam disobeyed God, what happened? He plunged the human race into a state of sin. That is to say, you and I were made sinners. And this is what the non-believer needs to hear. Some of you this morning are non-believers, and you need to hear that due to, to Adam's sin, you too were made a sinner, and you too will be condemned apart from grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. What are the implications? What are the implications? Apart from grace, we are all in Adam. And I must be honest with you that when I prepared this sermon a few weeks ago and I wrote this line that apart from grace, we are all in Adam, which is a recitation of Paul's argument in Romans 5, I had no idea what I was going to read in the days to follow. I mentioned it last week. In Rob Bell's new book, Everything is Spiritual, he says... We are all in Christ. Mr. Bell, we are not all in Christ. Some are in Adam, some are in Christ. The only ones in Christ are those who have received the saving grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, apart from grace, we, we fall under condemnation. We fall under God's just judgment. Apart from grace, we will face the almighty wrath of God. And apart from grace, we have no hope. Can you think of any news that would be any worse than this? I think I've said a few times over the last, kind of during the coronavirus crisis, that I'll have certain seasons in my life where I just say, I got to shut it off. I can't even listen to it anymore. One of my friends a few weeks ago said, I don't even watch the news anymore. What a blessing, right? But can you think outside of the bad news that we've been hearing over the last several months, can you think of any news any worse than this? To be under God's judgment, to be under his condemnation, to to fall under 10,000 degrees of white-hot wrath, to be a sinner without hope and without God in the world. You see, in Adam, we are condemned. In Adam, we are made sinners. 
But there is a radical contrast here. There's a radical comparison. And it's a comparison that we need to internalize. We need to take heart and be encouraged by this comparison. Now, in verses 18 and 19, I want to lift two phrases from these verses to make this super easy to understand. Statement number one, verse 18. So one act, this is the positive part. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. That is eternal life for all men. Verse 19. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so now we turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. But first, we remember that Adam, our father, who represented each of us, sinned and therefore counted us as guilty. At the heart of the gospel is what theologians refer to as, it's one of the greatest themes in the New Testament, the truth of double imputation. Double imputation. You see, the sin of every person, whoever believes, is imputed to Jesus. Jesus' own righteousness is imputed to me, and now God sees me through the completed work of Christ. Double imputation. I am imputed with Adam's sin, but because I trust in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ imputes his righteousness to me. And so God never negotiates with sin or compromises his holiness in the framework of this transaction. He punishes sin after it has been imputed to Jesus. He maintains his own righteousness. And as Paul so aptly writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that he is just and the justifier. I love that verse. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Turn with me. If you well, hold your finger in Romans 5 and go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 because the truth becomes all the more apparent here Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:21 for our sake he made him to be sin we make much of personal pronouns at Christ fellowship right who is him for our sake god made he made god made him that is jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the insight of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says it like this. Because, let let, let me say in, in preface, that there are some people who say it's not fair for, for you and I to be in Adam because of Adam's sin. And you have to be very careful with that line of argumentation. Because if it's not fair that we are in Adam's line and become sinners because of something he did, then it also follows that what Jesus accomplished for us isn't fair either. So we have to be very careful with this line of reasoning. Listen to Lloyd-Jones. He says, quote, Look at yourself in Adam. This gives you the opportunity to be a navel gazer just for a moment. Look at yourself in Adam. Though you have done nothing, 
you were declared a sinner. Everyone with me? Look at yourself in Adam. You haven't done anything, but before you were even born, you were declared a sinner. But Lloyd-Jones continues, look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared righteous. Can you believe it? So we've moved from the most horrible, deathly news that anyone could ever imagine to being a sinner under the wrath of God, under the just condemnation of God, to being declared righteous, and I didn't do anything to get it. I didn't do anything to deserve it. Come with me now from radical comparison to revolutionary grace. Look at verses 20 and 21, and it'll all begin to make sense, I believe. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In these verses, the Apostle Paul helps us to understand the purpose of the law. The law came in, as you see in verse 20, to do what? To increase the trespass. The law, you see, is like a mirror that reflects God's perfect righteousness and also reveals the depth of our sin. Have you ever woken up, and maybe I'm the only one, but you wake up and you look in the mirror and you're like, egads, that is some ugly face, right? You just look in the mirror and went, wow, zits galore. I got a lot of hair coming out of my ears. Gross. That's what the law does. It reflects God's perfect righteousness, but it also reveals the, the depth and the gravity and the hideousness of our sin. St. Augustine said this, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. You see, with the law, Paul says in Romans 3.20, comes a knowledge of sin. It's because the law is in place that we realize now, wow, I'm not only a sinner by nature, I'm a sinner by choice. The law, you see, shows us how, how truly sinful we are. And then what happens? As we gaze into the mirror of, of the law of God, we get guiltier and guiltier and guiltier. One writer says it like this, the law arouses sin but never arrests it. Isn't that interesting? The law arouses sin, but it never arrests it. But Paul ex explains how God's economy works. Listen carefully to his argument. Again, in verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so look with me at, at two aspects of grace in these closing verses. And we've moved from the, the horrific news to 
the hallelujah news. This, this is the, the fun part. This is the exciting part. First, notice with me, abounding grace. I want you to remember that revolutionary grace is abounding grace. Do you see it there? Paul says where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Can we do some congregational participation. How many of you from 6 a.m. to 11.30, which is right now, sinned at least one time this morning? Group participation. Some of you are like, oh, I didn't sin. I'm, I'm good. I'm, it's all cool. That's a bunch of baloney. We all sinned sometime, right? Probably numerous times. Here's the good news. Where sin increased, in fact, who would say you sinned maybe five times? in your heart of hearts. and Wow, okay. Why did more of you raise your hand when I said five times? That's weird. Think about it. It's counterintuitive. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace is God's active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who deserved the greatest punishment. That word abounded is an amazing word. It's a word that means to become numerous or abundant. And I don't have the trick with me, but I remember my, my late uncle used to do this, this magic trick. And there is no such thing as magic, right? Baptist church, ooh, right? It's all illusion, right? Where he'd stick something in his mouth, and have you seen this one? It would just, it's like this toilet paper just keeps coming and coming and coming. I remember as a kid being like, ow, where's, he, that's, he's like storing it in his stomach. It's in one of his knees. It's, it's, and he would just keep going and going. He'd be reciting Bible verses, going and going and going. It's amazing. That's abounding. That's abounding. Have you ever seen a, a water fountain? What does it do? It overflows. And Jonathan Edwards helps us even with water fountains. He said, there's no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. You're like, duh? Think about that. I mean, it's, the first time I heard that, I thought, that's philosophical. I mean, that is deep. There's no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. Why? Because fountains, help me, they overflow. By definition, the fountain overflows. That is abounding. That's what Paul's talking about here. Where sin overflowed, and mark this carefully, where sin overflowed, some of you said I sinned five times this morning. Some of you would say I sinned ten times this morning. Like, pastor, you have no idea. Where sin overflowed, grace flooded in. Where sin measurably increased, grace immeasurably increased. Where sin was finite, grace was infinite. Where sin was colossal, grace was, this is a great word, super colossal. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds, and we can make an exegetical argument in this verse that Paul is referring to the superabounding grace of God. The sin identified by the law in no way stopped the flow of God's grace. Jesus' death on Calvary's cross was sufficient payment for sin, putting grace into action that was not simply adequate, but 
abundant. You see the difference? What Jesus accomplished on the cross wasn't simply adequate, it was abundant. And so, this is the so what portion of the message. What does this mean for you and I who are in Christ? It means this. It means that when you give in to temptation, and this is, this is where you're going to be like, oh man, pastor's reading my email. Oh man, he's, 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 he's snuck in to the inner sanctum of my heart. And I can assure you that I haven't. But I do know this, we're all the same. We're all sinners. So when you give in to temptation, here's what it means. Grace superabounds. Isn't that good news? When you harbor resentment, grace superabounds. When you fall prey to selfishness or jealousy, it means that grace superabounds. Here's one that's a painful one. Are you ready? It means that when you get really lax on your tithing, I can just feel the elders going, where's he going with this? When you get lax with your tithing, or if you have not started tithing, here's what it means. It means grace superabounds. Whenever you sin, Scripture says that grace superabounds. And so revolutionary grace is abounding grace, but it doesn't stop there. And there's also more in the argument for next week, but grace is also reigning grace. Reigning grace, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. If you are in Christ, grace reigns. Not in the future, not when you go to heaven, although it will, but grace reigns right now. Death and sin have been utterly defeated. If you are in Christ, grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The British pastor, John Stott, went to be with the Lord a few years ago. He said it like this, Nothing could sum up better the blessings of being in Christ than the expression, reign of grace. I think I say this a lot, probably too much. That would be a great Christian rock band, right? Reign of grace. What do you think? Reign of grace. For grace forgives sins through the cross and bestows on the sinner both righteousness and eternal life. Grace satisfies the thirsty soul and fills the hungry with good things. Grace sanctifies sinners, shaping them in the image of Christ. Grace perseveres even with the recalcitrant, determining to complete what is or has begun. And Stott concludes, one day grace will destroy death and consummate his kingdom powerful. Number three, when grace captures your heart, you will discover that, the th- that God's throne is not an ordinary throne. You will discover that it is a throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My friends, when sin has you by the throat, flee 
with all your might to the throne of grace. When guilt paralyzes you, run as fast as you can to the throne of grace. When anxiety seizes your soul, flee to the throne of grace. And when you draw near to the throne of grace, you will discover an inexhaustible supply of encouragement from your Savior. It is there that you will receive mercy and grace and help in time of need. And something struck me. And I think this will be, uh, it will strike a nerve in, in all of you. Because you embrace the promise to draw near to the throne of grace, to have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. And there you are basking in the mercy of God and the grace of God. It's, it's a wonderful thing, but what happens, what is inevitable is that this precise moment you will hear the diabolical voice in your head that says something like this, you don't deserve grace. That ever happened to you? You're in Hebrews chapter 4, and you say, I remember that promise. I can have confidence to draw near to God and come to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. And you hear, yeah, buddy, but you don't deserve it. That comes from one of two places. That comes from the flesh, unredeemed flesh, or it comes from the father of lies. And here's what I know about the, the flesh and the father of lies. When the flesh dictates that message, when the father of lies dictates that message, we all know that the father of lies, Diabolos, the devil, Satan, he, he, he is a cunning enemy. Hear this really carefully. When he says you don't deserve God's grace, you know what's really interesting about that objection? He's right. You're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that one. I don't deserve God's grace. And so the enemy is shrewd. The enemy is slick. The enemy is cunning. When he says you don't deserve it, he's right. But guess what? God says it's yours. Even though I don't deserve it. And so what do you do? All the more reason to, to flee to the throne of grace. To have confidence. You remember the word confidence? It's a compound word. Con and fide. With faith. We, we flee with God-centered resolve and God-centered faith to the, the throne of grace to receive help and mercy in time of need. And so Satan, yeah, you're right. I don't deserve it, but guess what? God gave it to me. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to the throne of grace. And when we circle back and we see a, a crucial distinction in this set of verses, we see what theologians refer to, and it's, it's, it's really an important discussion, a distinction between law and grace. A distinction between law and grace. Listen to Jerry Bridges. He helps us a, a great deal. He says, so where law condemns, Grace forgives through the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the law commands but gives no power, grace commands but does give power through the Holy Spirit who lives and works within us. 
How many of you have someone you're ready to see in heaven? You just have that person in your mind. It was a a sibling, it's a mother, it's a father, it's grandpa, grandma. I have the whole list in my mind, right? Both sets of grandparents. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Both sets of grandparents, right? Relatives. Then I got the other guys, right? Edwards, John Owen, Luther. High-fiving with Luther, right? You know one guy I can't wait to see in heaven? The guy that sat in a prison cell for 13 years with a blind daughter waiting for dad in the outskirts of London named John Bunyan. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. I can't wait to meet John Bunyan. This man has encouraged me for over 30 years. And it never ceases to amaze me the wisdom that flows from his pen. Listen to what he says. He writes this for himself to remember the distinction between law and grace. Run, John, run. Run, John Bunyan, run. The law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. See, the culmination of Paul's argument comes in verse 21, that this reign of grace leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which begs this question. Today, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? You've heard it clearly proclaimed today that if you were here and you were in Adam, the Bible says that you are condemned and you will pay the price for every sin that you have ever committed. You will go to hell. You will be tormented forever and ever. You'll be justly punished for your sin. And I believe this so strongly that we will reach a certain juncture, and I haven't decided where, I have an inkling where, but somewhere in the study in the book of Romans, we will, we will take a break as we do from time to time, and we will do something that I've never done at Christ Fellowship, but I think our church greatly needs this right now in the history of the church, is we will do a topical and expositional study on the doctrine of hell. And it might go two or three weeks, maybe longer, but I'm convinced that evangelicals have lost their their doctrinal sideboards when it comes to the doctrine of hell. I think we we have bought the lie of certain authors and even pastors who have marginalized hell, who have sent hell to the periphery, and some who are denying hell altogether. A man contacts me about six months ago, and he writes a book against, quote-unquote, Christian universalism. I mean, Christian universalism, that's like jumbo shrimp. That's military intelligence, right? It's Baptist theologian. These things don't make any sense. Tough crowd, right? And he asked me if I'll read his book and review his book on Christian universalism. It's a massive book. It's a thick book where he quotes pastor after pastor and theologian after theologian and Christ follower, supposed Christ follower after supposed Christ follower who advanced the notion that when it's all said and done, we're all going to be saved and nothing could be further from the truth. We are not all in Christ. If you are in Adam, you'll be justly punished for your sin. 
So have you received eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, the scripture offers us this great encouragement. If we have trusted Christ and turned from our sin, we have been justified. We have been declared righteous. If you have trusted in Jesus exclusively for your salvation, guess what? The Bible says that you are robed with the, the, the righteous robe of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. You are free. You are forgiven. Think with me about downtown Bellingham or downtown Seattle or downtown Portland. You, you think about the city streets. Isn't that what people need? See, it's not social justice that people need. It's salvation that people need. It's salvation that people need. And so when George Washington laid his eyes on that ragtag band of citizen soldiers on that fateful day, he must have felt like the gig is up. It's all over. And in the same way, when sinners come face to face with their hopeless condition apart from the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the judgment that will inevitably fall in their head, what do they do? I hope you're doing this together with the people of God is they praise God for revolutionary grace. This is grace that is undeserved. This is grace that is unearned. This is grace that none of us could accomplish on our own. We are totally unable. We are totally incapacitated. And so, have you trusted in Christ? Are you fleeing to the throne of grace, receiving mercy and help in time of need? Please remember when the enemy of your soul says, you don't deserve it, you can remind him. Yep, I don't, but God gave it to me. Soli Deo Gloria. And let us now bow before the majesty of our great God and King. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this conclusion, a, a fitting conclusion in Romans chapter 5. Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you would uh, minister to someone right now, that your revolutionary grace would come crashing in like a, a band of soldiers and, and awaken someone. I pray that your revolutionary grace would encourage someone, that it would embolden someone. Perhaps a, a conversation needs to happen at the office this week. Perhaps a confrontation needs to happen. Perhaps an encouraging conversation needs to take place. I pray that by your spirit, through the instrumentality of your word, that you would enable someone, embolden them to, to do what's right and honorable before you, the living God, that it would be glorifying to you. And so thank you for the great hope. We have sung about this hope today. We have learned about it as we study your word. I pray that each person here in this sanctuary would be rejoicing and celebrating and delighting in the revolutionary grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.